Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Hello, I'm Elena, a community manager of the Unmistakable Creative Listeners Tribe at Mighty Networks. Every month in our group, we're tackling different monthly theme. But for the April, because of the coronavirus pandemic, every topic that would be useful otherwise seemed completely irrelevant. Therefore, Srini and I decided to devote the whole month to surviving and maybe even thriving during the pandemic. We decided to title the theme Self-Reinstallation, which is essentially self-isolation with a twist. During April, we will feature old podcast episodes like this one that we think can be helpful to you. Also in the group, we will talk about using ancient wisdom, creativity, learning, and thinking bigger thoughts to get on the other side of this crisis improved and inspired. Historically, we have always survived crisis in tribes and communities, so right now you're better off not struggling alone. If all of this sounds interesting and useful, we really hope you'll join us in more than 1,000 amazing creatives we already have in the tribe. To learn more and join for free today, go to unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. I hope to see you there. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Srini. So I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you're listening to the show. And if you found the podcast fascinating, instructive, inspiring, or maybe even heartwarming, if there's one person you could think of who'd appreciate our show, a friend or a family member, take a moment and share the show with them because good ideas are meant to be shared. Yancey, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across uh, your work by way of your publicist who sent me your book. I know you're the co-founder of Kickstarter, which we will talk about. But when I picked up This Could Be Our Future, I thought, wow, this is one of these books that I couldn't put down. It was... Uh, I loved the idealism. I loved the optimism. And then I also had moments of doubt, like, is this mm. possible? All of which we will get into. Um, mm. But uh, before we get into that, I, I want to ask you what I think is a very relevant question to frame this. And that is, what is the earliest memory that you have or earliest imprint you remember growing up about money that you got from your parents? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I... <sighs> er, earliest, hard to say, but, you know, I grew up lower middle class. My... My father, my, my parents divorced when I was three, but my dad was a traveling waterbed salesman. Um, and my mom was a secretary at a local college at a, you know, a school nearby. Um, wow. And I, you know, I was, I was aware of like money being an issue. Um, you know, it wasn't like going hungry or anything like that, but we definitely lived a very modest life. And I was always very aware that money was a real limitation and that wasn't mm -hmm. hidden from me. Um, and so, you know, I would say I've, I've largely felt kind of fearful of money. Um, you know, generally whenever money would come up, it, I, I can't recall it ever being in a positive context. Um, yeah. you know, it was always one of fear and of lacking and, um, and that really colored my experience 
through high school, through college, you know, I, I moved to New York after college and became a music critic. Um, you know, which also did, that did not change my fi- my financial standing in any way. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I, I remember when I was maybe maybe I was close to thirty was the first time I made like more than fifty thousand dollars in a year. And right, right. Um, yeah, so I, I you know I I I think of money as being a, a struggle and really not something that I was ever particularly adept at because I had more of a fear of it than like uh, wanting to go towards it. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I remember when I first made over 50 grand and first felt like some level of solidity for the first time. And it was, oh my goodness, it was, it was night and day, you know, it, it made yeah. a huge difference. But there was a part of me that was all, I just assumed that this was temporary and that I would fall back to where I'd been. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I really only stopped assuming that would be the case, you know, maybe in the last five or six years of my life. What changed? How did you stop assuming to, that that would be the case? Because I, I can relate. I'm absolutely in that exact same situation. You know, I just did, you know, finished writing two books with a publisher. And in my mind, I'm like, wow, am I ever going to get back to that same sort of level of, you know, status again in terms of, of accomplishment? Uh, it, and at the same time, I am kind of like, okay, I know that there's this emptiness that comes with accomplishment, which we'll talk about because I know mm-hmm. you wrote about life goals mm-hmm. and I want to definitely talk about that. But it, it, what changed? Like, how did that change? Was it just because of the success of Kickstarter or did something shift internally? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, one is, I, you know, I think in, in so many ways and what you look for in love and what makes you comfortable, like, you know, childhood sets a, it's, you know, it just creates an imprint that you then consider normal, right? So normal to me up until, you know, for the first 30 years of my life was of like struggle and looking at your bank account, you have to like really swallow hard and be prepared before you look. And, um, so probably it was like having five or six years of not having that experience. You know, Kickstarter, we, you know, didn't guide it towards a personal financial outcome. Like we didn't create the company to sell it or to try to cash out for ourselves. And in fact, as the co-founders of the company, we were all very clear that we didn't want to do that, that we didn't see that as being success. And mm-hmm. that was not something that we were eager for. So um, so, you know, definitely Kickstarter provided a level of security and by creating something that had real meaning in the world that also like is a business just, I think allowed me to feel like I have, like, there's finally a foundation here, you know, mm-hmm. there's a foundation here after my family. Yeah. Um, and then probably even having my own family, getting married, having a child, you know, that also made me like, like, we're very budget conscious. We have a weekly budget and like, really like working with that kind of discipline um, because mm. now I feel, you know, now that I'm not just having to think about myself, uh, you know, I'm, I've forced myself to become responsible. You know, I forced myself to do the things I didn't want to do, um, and have yeah. to create tools and structures to help me do that because I know on my own part of me is still like the little boy that just, you know, just hates when anyone brings up money. Cause I just know it's going to lead to a stressful outcome. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can relate. I feel like I've had relationships and because of my money situation, I've had, um, you know, tension with other people because of my money situation. It's one of those things that I just felt was, you know, it's, it's a strange thing, you know, in the world we live in. And I think it's a real, to me, like I said, it's a really relevant question given the subject matter of the book. But, uh, one thing I wonder is that your narrative here is kind of an anomaly in the world of technology startups where, you know, investors throw down money and the expectation is, okay, this money is going to produce some sort of return. I know this because we just raised a round of venture funding in my mind. I thought, all right, there's one thing I'm thinking about here is how do I make sure I get them a positive return on this investment? Uh, 
And that, you know, that makes me nervous too. Yeah. Um, but you guys are, you guys are an anomaly in that you kind of have basically gone against the grain when it comes to this narrative. Yeah. And well, when, you know, guess, it's, it's like you yeah. signed, you signed a post-dated check when you took that money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you know it, but you don't really know it and, and mm-hmm. you won't feel what the, what the reality of that is, you know, yeah. the expectation set for the financial backing of whatever your project is, the expectations those set will ultimately kind of make every decision for you for the foreseeable future. You won't, you won't know that. And there'll still Mm -hmm. be a question of how, like what is the path to get to this outcome? But it essentially puts you in a place of, you must prioritize growth and margins and profit margins. Mm -hmm. And, and you're free to, you're free to play around and do all your cute things. You know, you're free to virtue signal on the internet all you want to, but in the end, in the end, what matters is, your growth rates and your margins. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that, that's how, that's how institutional money thinks because it's, it's yeah. simply looking at the rate of return. Um, you know, I think it was, uh, of the co-founders, you know, Perry, it was Perry Chen who first had the idea for Kickstarter. And I think he was, he, he was the one that had just like the greatest personal suspicion of, of what kind of requirements, what strings would come with money. Yeah. Um, for Charles and I, the or also co-founders of Kickstarter, you know, we both came from like music backgrounds and just, you know, just aren't people that are geared that way. weren't weren't mm-hmm. looking for those outcomes. I'm like, you know, I loved Fugazi and things like that in high school. So to me, like being punk rock and never selling out is just like something that I was taught in a very deep way. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, but but you know, the kind of the beauty of Kickstarter, one one of the many beauties of it, but is that you know, we didn't raise a lot of money. The, the, the site was funded with not a lot of money and the site was profitable early on because we really focused on that. We didn't grow too much. We didn't try to let growth drive further growth yeah. um, where you get locked in these loops that you have to fulfill. Right. Instead, it was like, work. yeah, exactly. And instead we were in a position where we just always had maximum optionality. We could do what we wanted. We mm. were in control of our destiny. And we just thought that is the, that is the situation that will let us make the best decision, you know, the, most often. Now that doesn't mean you always do. And, and there's ways that that pressure from investors can be helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But, but when the only acceptable outcome, the only acceptable, yeah, the only acceptable outcome of a project is a financial outcome for somebody else. Yeah. Um, I don't know. To me, that sparks a lot of like existential questions that really lower my drive to do something mm-hmm. in that area. Um, and so Kickstarter, well, yes, work, works a different way. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, part of my thought process was, you know, okay, look, this was one of those things where we were kind of like, okay, we're going month to month and every, every like little thing is a make or break moment where, um, it's just terrifying. We're not able to think longer term about this. Uh, and I think that was the one thing it kind of, you know, you mentioned peace of mind. I think it gave me the peace of mind to know that, okay, you know what? I can make longer term decisions now because the lifeline has been extended significantly. Um, you have a bigger runway. So that's that's one way I think about it. But I, I totally get where you're coming from because I, I it's like a strange paradox, right? At the same time, I still have to deal with exactly what you're talking about. Well, you know, it's it's I'm sure there's a story that you tell yourself, and it's true to some significant degree that like, hey, the unmistakable creative podcast being the single biggest media platform in the world would be a great thing for the world. 
And so like that signing up to that as my goal is not just for me, it's for everybody. Think of, think of all the ways people will be more empath- empathic and, you know, more thoughtful, except like that, that's a story that we could tell. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a nice story. The, the reality is probably doing that means like, you know, you're, you're maybe compromising things that you didn't think that you would have to compromise on. Oh yeah. Know? And, yeah. and, but, but there is the case for some businesses where that, where that is true, you know? So like mm-hmm. Kickstarter, Kickstarter, it's like helping creative projects get out into the world. We didn't want to help charitable projects. We thought that that should be a different site. And it did end up being a different site, GoFundMe. Um, mm-hmm. And we wanted to create a certain vibe in a certain space. Um, and so that necessitates a lot of like kind of indie rock choices about how you build your business. But yeah. You know, I'm advising a startup now called REN, Project REN, W-R-E-N, that's like a carbon monthly subscription carbon offsetting service. Mm-hmm. You put in your carbon calculator, you then pay, I pay $40 a month to plant and protect trees in Ethiopia and Brazil. Um, wow. And so that's a business that I, like, I love working with them. They're amazing entrepreneurs. Um, but I'm like, I will tell you how to do certain things, but ultimately like your job is to be as big as possible. Yeah. You know, like you're... You, like Kickstarter's goal of like let's be let's be as meaningful as possible to the right number of people is mm-hmm. right for that product. But something like a carbon offsetting subscription service, I'm like, you need to be as mass as possible. You know, right. I, I don't know that there's any other way to think about success. Yeah, well, so there, there, I mean, and everyone thinks they're that special case. I think few things actually <laughs> are, but that is yeah. the story we tell ourselves. Well, I, I love that because yeah, it's it's something that you know I, I think a lot about. And one of the the commitments I always made is I said I will never make a guest choice based on what I think that person would do for our downloads. Like I I've turned down people who are extremely well known that everybody listening has heard of, mainly because I just didn't feel they were aligned with our values. And that to me is and that's served as well. In fact, some of the most unknown people often end up being our most provocative and interesting guests. Um, but we did we've done that at the cost of metrics at times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's the right you want to have, um, you know, and that's, that's something that just gets, it gets more complicated over time. Um, yeah. the size of the organization changes and, you know, it's funny is even when like the DNA of a company is set a certain way, the founders, like even in Kickstarter, the founders see it a certain way, how the, you know, how, how the staff or members of the team may feel may be completely different, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so actually sometimes you get, pushed by people internally saying, Hey, why don't we try to grow more? Why don't we, yeah. why don't we try launching this product that I think will really like move the numbers and someone will have a great argument. And, and then mm-hmm. the, you know, it's hard when the response is, yeah, but that's, you know, if we think about where we ultimately want to end up, I don't think it's there. Right. Yeah. Like, is that, is that a path towards our ultimate destination? Uh, or is that something that's going to possibly take us away from that? If it's the latter, then no matter how good the idea is, we, we shouldn't do it because you know, you, you earn trust and you build a brand through that, just that long-term predictability of just making the same decisions day after day. And on a daily yeah. basis, it feels completely not rewarding. It feels not rewarding. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're losing because every day you're seeing, you know, press releases of companies and other people doing new things. And you're like, oh man, we got what are we doing? What's the new thing? You know, yeah. and you feel this pressure but really it's like doing the same thing over a long period of time. It becomes meaningful the longer you do it. It's quite strange. Uh-huh. It's quite yeah, strange. Yeah, I mean, I can yeah. relate. We've been at this for 10 years. So, 
one of the things that I want to talk about is music. You've, you've alluded to it uh, a couple of different times uh, during our conversation. And um, I think that, you know, I want to talk about that and briefly about projects on Kickstarter and then get into the content of the book. But um, what influence did music end up having on the choices that you made after um, your time in music? Like what, you know, what did you take away from that that you've applied going forward? Well, yeah, I spent, you know, I spent like 10 years or so as a music journalist. I'd started a little record label at a place I worked, you know, I, I was, that was what I most was most passionate about still is one of my probably three or four biggest passions. Um, you know, I mean that, that definitely informed how I thought about Kickstarter where, you know, I was working in the digital music industry in like the early 2000s. So at that time, the, the crisis was Napster and like, how is mm. like, no one's going to pay for music anymore. And, yeah. um, which was an important conversation, but what I just kept thinking about was like, well, nobody's thinking about like how this music gets made in the first place, like for mm. how, how, where's the artist getting money to make the thing? And, and what if, and what if it's not going to be a hit? And like, everyone was just sort of imagining that there's this, that there's this natural steady state flow of great music that was just automatically going to happen. It was just a matter of like how much they could sell of it and where. And to me, it just felt very, it was like a businessman's way of thinking about the music industry rather than a musician's way of thinking about it. So, you know, it just led me to have an even just more and more uh, of alignment with, with artists, with musicians. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as a critic, that's, that's a funny thing to have because it's often an antagonistic <laughs> relationship. Um, yeah. You know, you're as a critic, you're like using the musician as a platform to show how smart you are. Often mm -hmm. that's like many, many of my reviews ultimately boil down to that, like very not, not glorious goal. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, but you know, I, the other thing I took from music, just music is that when I, when I, when I went full time into Kickstarter, I, I had, real mixed feelings about it because music had defined my, had defined me being a musician, being a writer had defined me. And mm. I really worried about becoming in my mind, just a businessman. And yeah. like, that felt like a real sellout that felt like losing a part of myself. Um, uh, and I just didn't know, I don't know. I was, I was like more nervous about that than really seems in any way reasonable or appropriate. Um, yeah. but you know what I found that like, Three months after I'd stopped working in music and was like working on Kickstarter, I was intellectually stimulated, but also I ended up loving music way more than ever before. You know, I I, mm -hmm. I spent like the whole year, the whole year after I stopped being a critic, I only listened to this Fleetwood Mac record, Tusk, which is a great record, but I like only listened to that for a year because in the past, you know, my job was to write about whatever the new thing is and to get out the first review. And so you're just churning through stuff at such a crazy rate to where nothing is meaningful. Like none of the music mm -hmm. is meaningful. And so then like this ultimate rebellion of, I get to just go away and spend time with an, you know, kind of a maligned record from the seventies for a year and just go deep with something that had no cultural meaning, uh, except as like a, a work of music. And that, that put me on a great path with music again. I mean, I, I play music every day. I listen to it all the time. It's like it, it, you know, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts because I think that I, I need to save that time for music. Cause like, that's, yeah. that's where that's like my spirituality, you know? It's funny. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts and I host one. So. Yeah, yeah. Podcasts are the internet for your ears. That's, that's yeah. like, I'm like, sometimes I, I just need to go away from that. 
So we know a lot of you have been listening to us for years, and it means the world to us. What we do here at The Unmistakable Creative wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. If the podcast has been valuable to you, one of the best ways you can support us is to subscribe to Unmistakable Creative Prime, which gives you access to transcripts, all of our courses, monthly coaching calls, live chats with our guests, and an incredible community of creatives. And it costs less than you spend on a cup of coffee every month. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. So I, let's talk briefly about the people who who launch projects on Kickstarter, because I, I think often about some of the things that Seth Godin has said about Kickstarter, you know, he is, well, well, I don't, you probably heard him say this. He said it should really be called kick finisher, because I think that there's a sort of delusion in my mind that people think that the success of their projects on Kickstarter is based on, you know, um, attention from strangers on the internet. And yet, if you look at the people, at least, you know, in the circles that I've run in and the guests that I've had, almost all of them had an existing audience that helped to fuel their Kickstarter projects. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, as the co-founder, like, what is, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. I mean, if, if the Kickstarter project is your first step in something, you know, I think, I think that's an issue. Like you are, it is a, it's a conversion of loyalty, trust, and love into fuel for the next project. And if you mm -hmm. haven't earned a lot of that trust, loyalty, or love, it's, it's going to be harder. Um, yeah. and, but you know, of course we all want to believe, you know, we, we just all want to believe our biggest dreams. I mean, who, who can yeah. help it? You know, it's like, we look, you know, I look at, I look at tweets on Twitter that have thousands of retreats and, you know, I'm like, all right, how do I, how do I do one of those? You know, how do I do one of those? And then you like, look, and the person has like 60,000 followers and you're like, okay, okay so I, I have to do that first. Okay. And, but you know, there's yeah. this, you're just like, how do I, you know, I'm smart. I'm, you know, I have good ideas. Why can't I do mm -hmm. that? And so yeah. it's a human, it's, it's a human trait. Um, you know, I, I think that, the process, like the UI, the, the, the messaging, the, the sort of the instructions you're giving and building a project, try to prepare you for this, try to give you mm -hmm. a sense of what's ahead of you. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not easy. So there is just a natural filter that happens, yeah. but you know, it is, there's some significant portion, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of projects that don't end up getting a single backer. And it's mm -hmm. because people are doing it with this reason, right? They're just like, yeah. Well, if I put it there, something good's going to happen, right? And sometimes that does happen, but those That's who rare. count on it, you know, it, it's sorry. Sorry well, about yeah, that. Yeah, so I look at that and, and, you know, I mean, obviously Patreon kind of, I think was a follow-up to you guys in terms yeah. of supporting artists, but I look at Patreon and I mean, I look at the internet in general and I think that the internet literally mirrors America. Like you've got sort of um, the 1% and everybody else when it comes to creative projects, the internet, like a small swath of companies get the bulk of the traffic on the internet. Um, a small group of creators get the bulk of like supporters, a small group of authors make, you know, cause the bulk of book sales. Um, and so, so, you know, I think that, you know, you open the book and I think this actually makes a perfect segue by saying execution is a critical gap between idea and reality, but it's not the only one. Another is belief for ideas to matter. People have to believe in them. There's only so much an idea can do it's on its own. Ideas need supporters, carriers, and executors to become real. And I think that there's no shortage of people who believe in their own ideas. The question is, how do you bridge the gap between people who believe in their own ideas and getting other people to believe in them? Yeah. I mean, it's a, and that's kind of one of the ultimate competitions at this moment in time. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is like, 
you know, the container you express it in, it, you know, dictates a lot of that. Um, you know, I, I was, it was clear to me that I, you know, the only way to, to share the things I was thinking about would be in a book and, you know, mm-hmm. a book felt like it's like the, the minimum viable real thought, <laughs> you know, like anything in, you know, what is any article ever meant to me? You know, um, sure, there are some like philosophical essays that have meant a lot to me, but, you know, there's just, I think for an idea to really earn its way into your thinking, um, you need to live inside of it. You know, you, mm. you need you need to live with it. You need to breathe it in. And um, and so I was just very, I was very clear on the form that, that this would take. And, mm. and I was, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about, the outcome I, I desired from the book and before yeah. I started writing it. And there were sort of two outcomes I thought about. One was that people would walk away and this is, you know, people would walk away with a, fe- a specific kind of feeling, uh, a feeling mm-hmm. like they were seeing the world in a different way than they'd seen it before. But like there yeah. was this emotional spark uh, I wanted people to experience. And it's one that I, I write about in the book. It's a similar spark that I felt of just watching Kickstarter happen was initially terrifying to me because I couldn't believe that just something that, you know, the three of us are working on that Perry had made up was just like suddenly working and people were just using it. And I was just waiting mm-hmm. for like the person in charge to come give us our official paperwork to say we were approved to like change the world in this way. Yeah. And the fact that things were so wide open was really alarming to me. And then over time it felt empowering. And so I, yeah. I'm trying to create a similar kind of journey, um, an emotional journey for people. Um, and and then, you know, I was also really influenced by, there's this book by a writer named John Higgs, and it's the book is called The KLF, The Band Who Burned a Million Pounds. And the KLF were like a- I remember them. Yeah. So, the KLF Justified made- Justified and ancient. Yeah, exactly. They had some big early electronic hits in the late 80s, yeah. early 90s in the UK. And at uh, the height of their fame, um, the two guys took out a million pounds, almost all their money, took out a million pounds from their bank account went to a deserted Scottish island with a journalist who had a camcorder and they burned it all. They wow. Burned, they burned a million pounds. They burned it. It took like over an hour. Um, they didn't tell anyone for multiple months. And then they began doing screenings in art galleries around the UK where they would screen this filming, this film of them burning like 20 pound note after 20 pound note over the course of an hour. First time anyone knew that they had done this, they would show this video and then they would say, they would ask the audience, why did we do this? And it was like a genuine question. Mm. And they became like the most vilified people in the world, as you can imagine. Because um, it's like, you know, Elton John spending a million pounds a year on flowers was productive, but then burning a million <laughs> pounds is like the most, <laughs> you know, the most offensive thing possible. So John yeah. Higgs writes this amazing book about this story. And what he ends up saying is that he believes that they were speaking, they were trying to communicate with something that Alan Moore called the idea space. And Alan Moore says that just as there's a physical world, there's a chemical world, there's a spiritual world, there's also an ideas world, a, a place where ideas natively live. And we imagine this idea space, we have an image of it of as like thought bubbles above our heads, and that's kind of right. But what we don't realize is that the the thought bubbles above our heads have doors, and that our ideas will leave our our, our minds, and they will interact with other minds in like the idea space and the boulevards and parks of the idea space. And that it's also possible for an idea to create itself in the idea space and then enter a human's mind. 
and that it doesn't originate inside our own brains, but actually comes from somewhere else. And then we become the carriers for it. And so John Higgs thinks that this choice of, bu- of burning a million pounds was the idea space speaking through the KLF, trying to express to them like what the ultimate sacrifice would be, what the ultimate statement would be, what would be the most meaningful thing to do, which was to burn all of their money. And mm-hmm. that that would produce some meaningful response. And um, I was really struck by this, how, how John Higgs writes about the idea space and the sense of how things work. And it, it felt very true to me. And so I was imagining my book as trying to speak to the idea space, trying to speak to like, I'm imagining like Luke going into the Death Star and trying to find that deepest vulnerable point, that, 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 that one spot where like the truth is still exposed. And how do, I, how do I poke that point? And how do I put like a drop of red in that reservoir and shift how we think? And so yeah. I like, that was a real image I had in my mind every day, putting a drop of red in the reservoir. And, and, and then, uh, and I wanted it to, and I wanted it to have an emotional response for people. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, there was just like this, the shape, this color, this feeling that uh, I could sense would matter. And that I, I, and because I could see it, it was my responsibility to try to execute it. And every day I was just trying to like, just trying to brush aside the the dust and and, and carve that out. Hmm. Well, one of the things that you you hit on over and over and over uh, in the book, which I think for good reason, based on the content, um, is this whole idea of financial maximization. You say, you know, financial maximization says that in any decision, the rational choice is the one that makes the most money. This is the underlying why behind many of our choices. And you also say that it's a never-ending search for cost to cut and value to extract, even in periods of success. Its only move is the downside to downsize people and redistribute money to shareholders. There's no vision for anything else. And you really go, I think, deeper into this idea in this whole chapter about the mullet economy, in which you talk about the maximizing class, the end of raises, you know, competition, layoffs. So one, could you expand on that for us? And then, you know, in the context of the fact that we're literally on the eve of another election, how do you think about it, you know, from that standpoint, from a political standpoint? Yeah. Um, see, I, I write the, the, the theme of the first half of the book is this, as you said, financial maximization, the idea that the rational choice in every decision is whichever option makes the most money. And, you know, I, sh- I show how that is like shaped our choices. And I, I, one of the things I really want people to understand is that this hasn't always been there. Um, that this is something that uh, I contend really came to pass in the early 1970s. And one of the ways I give evidence of this is showing that from 1945 until 1973, the average American worker got a 90% raise, and it was the lowest paid workers who got the biggest raises. And then starting in 1973, the way that companies began to operate really changed. And we can see this, one of the most striking places is in worker pay, where adjusted for inflation since 1973, the average American worker has gotten a 10% raise. So it's like a 90% raise up until 1973. And then there's this record scratch moment where people stop getting raises. And if you look at it, the productivity of the American worker has continued to increase. So it wasn't like right. they were doing less. Um, and this means that the high point for pay for productivity for the American worker was 73, the same year Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon came out. Um, but I talk about how the shape that's been created by this is is what I call the mullet, um, where the mullet economy, sorry, where you know the mullet is business in front as the hairstyle is business in front, party in the back. And so where we've ended up is that for 90% of people, life is business in front with frozen wages, layoffs, and like extreme job insecurity. Um, and then it's the party in the back for the top 1% where, 
where um, since the same time workers have gotten a 10% raise, the bosses have gotten a 1,000% raise and stock mm-hmm. buybacks are just through the roof. So what's crazy is you say, well, if this is true, if workers have only gotten a 10% raise since 1973, then how, like, how can that possibly be true? Look at the world around us. Look at how much more money is floating around. How could this be the case? And this is where you see the shift in strategy because in the past, companies would give people raises. They would redistribute wealth through to workers who helped make it. And then what changed in 1970 was the invention of something called the credit card. In the ni- up until the 1960s, there was zero credit card debt in the United States. But once people stopped getting raises, credit cards started filling that gap. And there's a chart I show where you lay over credit card debt over the falling, uh, over the stagnant wages for American workers over the last 50 years. And the credit card debt perfectly makes up this gap. You know, right now there's a trillion dollars in outstanding credit card debt in America. So for the people on top, they realized that it was far more profitable to make people borrow their raises and pay interest on them than it would be to pay them. And Mm. this level of thinking is what's driven everything. This is why everything's become financialized, why student loan debt is so high, because college is 19 times more expensive than it used to be. There's just all all these choices that we look at and just don't make sense to us as a human being, as a citizen, it doesn't make sense to us. And so, you know, I believe the perspective that it does make sense by is if we consider the fact that every choice is being made according to this one criteria of the of the what is the highest financial outcome, um, and so no. and I I think that's I think that's changeable. Um, I, I think yeah I think that's very changeable. Well, I, I guess I think of it in terms of you know the reason I asked the question about sort of politic, politics and and you know uh, an election is because you know we've been watching Trevor Noah you know and people apparently like Wall Street is shitting bricks over Elizabeth Warren uh, you know constantly and Jamie Dimon the CEO of Citibank was just like oh she's vilifying billionaires and uh, I mean it was just an interesting perspective but I, I wonder I mean, you mentioned student loan debt so I didn't want to get out of this without talking to you about that because um, you know I I have a student loan debt that I I remember we had Andrew Yang here and I told. I feel like this is like an insurmountable mountain. Like it's it's just not going to happen unless I get really rich. Like that's, you know, the honest truth. Yeah. Uh, so, and I asked him, am I alone here? He said, no, he said, it's you and millions of people in the exact same situation. He said that he thought that his student loans, he felt like were so big that he felt like he had a mistress at another family because that's mm-hmm. how big the checks were for law school. Uh, so I wonder, I mean, I used to joke, I was like, I wonder if we could Kickstarter like the end of student loan debt. Yeah. yeah. But then you have this sort of paradox at play of self-interest. Like people, unfortunately, are, you know, driven by so much self-interest as we've seen from the people who are at the top. Like, why is it that we have this sort of self-interest driven way of doing things and we're not, you know, like I said, I think the way that you wrote this book, like, I thought, wow, this is a very utopian and idealistic view of the world, which I love. And then part of me has the doubts that I do based on the questions that I just asked. Yeah, well, I think that the the political structure is a big reason why financial maximization has just so effectively run the show. You know, there's been a lot of changes in regulation. Um, you know, just just the way our society has been governed has really shifted hard in the favor of like the 0.1%. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, hearts and minds can change, but there has to be a, a political component of this change as well. Um, you know, I, I noticed just a couple of weeks ago, um, it was the, the person who was working for Betsy DeVos in the department of education, who was responsible for taking yeah. in student loan payment payments. He, he quit, he quit the Trump administration and said that instead proposed that all student loans should be wiped away and that everyone who is paid 
their student loans back before should get a tax credit up to $50,000 to account mm. for the debt they've repaid in the past. Yeah. And so, th- you know, this coming from a Republican leader is meaningful. The fact that he had to quit his job where it was his job to do this, to say this is, is frightening. Um, mm. But, you know, there's the saying about how only Nixon could go to China. Like there's this kind of like, uh, if you if you pursue policies that are too in line with your ideological beliefs, it's it's difficult. It's harder to achieve. But if you're doing it sort of across party lines, it's weirdly more possible. Um, yeah. So I you know I think the wiping away student debt I, that might happen. I mean, Bernie you know Bernie Elizabeth Warren really put that on the table, and there's not a good argument for it. Now there is a a counter proposal in the House of Representatives when the Republicans had control, which is about man- mandatory garnishment of wages. Uh, mm-hmm. for people's student loans, which is just insanity. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this is, to me, this is an example of how just the order of our society really, really doesn't work and, re- and really produces a quite like an outcome I can't imagine anyone really desires unless you are one of those student loan companies or you, you yeah. know, you own their stock. Uh, but yet that is the only criteria through which we're, we're making these choices. Um, I remember watching this documentary uh, with this Matt Damon documentary. I, I don't remember what it was called. It was about the financial crisis. And it was, you know, one of the CEOs was like one of the lenders of these, these students. It was either Fannie Mae Inside job. Mac. Inside job. It was yeah, Inside job. And I was like, this guy took a $90 million bonus when they took a billion dollar loss. I'm like, fuck that guy. I'll pay my minimum payment. <laughs> that was my yeah. attitude. Yeah. Um, you know, it, and, you know, forgive my, my vulgarity, but that's just kind of the way I felt. about. I, I don't think I'm alone in feeling that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the, you get, you know, we just get so protectionist. We get so protectionist yeah. over what we have. Um, there's a human nature part of it. Um, even though, you know, even though that money is meaningless to that person, really mm-hmm. it's meaningless. It's, 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 a, it's a proxy for self-esteem. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it's that important because they are so unhappy in other ways. You know, I feel yeah. Like there's a line in Sapiens where uh, Yuval Harari says that like, we thought we tamed wheat, but wheat tamed us. Well, mm. you know, rich people think they've tamed capital, but capital has enslaved them. You know, the, the idea that the only choices that are possible are ones that produce a return that beats the S&P index is crazy. But mm-hmm. for the wealthiest people in the world that, that, yes, they live lives of luxury. Yes, they have all these things, but all their choices fundamentally come down to like a math problem. And, you know, when I've been like doing book stuff over the last few weeks, I found myself in rooms with more wealthy and powerful people than I'm used to. And, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm seizing those opportunities to talk about this. And the big thing I, I keep trying to ask people is, can you imagine a world in which investing financial value to create non financial value is like a rational thing to do? You know, if you spend money, you're not going to get a financial return, but say you're going to get a return in terms of uh, awareness or uh, future sustainability or, you know, the, the, the planet going through less harm or the social cohesiveness of human beings being greater. Could you imagine, could I make a case to you that spending money on that is like a highly profitable thing to do? And, um, and you know, I get, I get looks of real confusion. And, and, and <laughs> like, there's a, and like, there's a, uh, to me, it feels like there's a synapse missing. Cause it's like talking to very mm-hmm. smart people who are, you know, very well educated, but you propose this idea of let's use financial capital to create non-financial capital. And, and I want to make the case to you that that's actually the, the single best thing we could do, you know, cause at the same time, these people are talking about how there's trillions of dollars 
sitting out of the markets because super wealth, wealthy people, there aren't enough places to make enough money off with them that it's worth spending it. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. meanwhile, the world burns. Yeah. Meanwhile, the world burns and we wonder, and you know, we wonder why. Right. And so we, we've been trapped by this notion that the only use of financial value is to create more financial value. So the only human activities that are allowed to move forward are ones that have a high probability of, pro- of producing a minimum of a maximum financial outcome. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
I think that, you know, you talk about the trap, you know, you have an entire chapter where you talk about life goals, role models, and, you know, sort of um, being scared successful. And I think I, I loved, you know, the the study you quoted about the UCLA students where some exorbitant percentage of them wanted to be rich. And I, you know, it's funny because you talk to like younger people, some ridiculous amount of them want to be famous because of social media. Mm. Uh, so, you know, one thing you did say- I think that's was, changed. You know, I think that's that changed, right? Because there was the- yeah. There was the, uh, I forget the rapper was the line, the line that was so big, but like, you know, they be making memes, I be making millions, you know? So yeah. I think we've, I think we've switched back from fame, from fame to wealth again, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing you say is when we base our idea of success on external motivators, we enter a race without a finish line. There's no winning, only the race. And, you know, so I, I was, it's, it was so strange for me to, because I was taking my notes on your book this morning. And earlier this morning, I wrote, you know, there's these four words that basically are the root of all of our suffering. And that's all be happy when. <laughs> and, you know, then I came across that line and I thought, you know, like, who are we kidding? Every one of us has this sort of idealized version of who we are that only exists in the future when we have more money, when we have, you know, the romantic part or whatever it is. Mm. Um, do you feel that you've resolved that paradox in your life? Like, do you, do you feel like there's still another goalpost? Cause Ryan holiday, you know, was just here. Um, he hit the New York times bestseller as the latest book. It was the eighth book. But one of the things he said is like, no amount of accomplishment is going to make you feel as good as you think you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I think on like the, on the macro level, I think I'm, I, I, I feel, I feel good about where I am. You know, I have a, uh, you know, I have a family that I feel very in, in tuned with and, um, and like I'm using, I'm devoting my time to like intellectual things. And that is like, uh, that is, a I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's luxurious. It's, it's, it's most connected to my truest self. It's, um, you know, so like on the macro level, I mean, you know, pretty amazing, pretty amazing. The two years since leaving Kickstarter, pretty amazing, not easy, but amazing on, yeah. on a minute to minute level all over the place. I'm all over the place. You know, it's like, uh, you know, this is my first book and, um, and I don't even want to say how many times a day or a week I like look at my Amazon <laughs> rating, right. And, and, and I literally, I had a day last week where I'd like, uh, many amazing things were happening. I was in like, I was in Portugal being a part of a really great event. And, it, you know, was, I was really excited about it. And that morning I like looked at my Amazon rating, which was okay. And then yeah. I, you know, then of course, uh, in the lead up to the book, I start to look at who are people that have books coming out around the same time as me. And then you <laughs> form your cohort. And so of course, after I felt good about my book, then I had to go and look at like the three other books that I think of as like in the same vein as me. And, Simon Sinek, I'm yeah, guessing. and they were all, and they were all, and they were all doing better and they were all yeah. doing better. And so like, literally I'm like walking to this thing and I'm just feeling yeah. terrible about myself. And I, and mm -hmm. I'm just like this, I mean, I felt it in a lead up to the book too, right? You spend months yeah. like pitching, pitching op-eds everywhere. And the New York times mm -hmm. had expressed interest in an op-ed and they invited me to write it. And I wrote it and then I didn't hear anything for three weeks. And then they said, no. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if, if like, if I had had the choice to pull the plug on the book at that moment, like there's a part of me that would have done it because I just yeah. thought this is already, I'm already a failure. Well, I can relate. It's funny because I wrote an entire book where this was the primary message of the book. It was called an audience of one reclaiming creativity for its own sake. I should send it to you because I have, um, I wrote about this, like the Amazon things. I almost never look at my Amazon rankings anymore because I just, I'm like, this is a recipe for insanity as you've just learned. Um, and, and yeah, I, I totally relate to that. It's it's one of those things that I think is extremely hard to do. Uh, 
particularly because it's not like you do this thing and think, oh, you know what? I don't care uh, that it whether it reaches a lot of people, but it's you know, there's always somebody who I think goes ahead. Well, I yeah, well, I had to reach. Um, well, Simon Simon's next book is not one of the books I wouldn't even dream of competing with Simon. But his <laughs> book is great. His book is great on this idea of the infinite game. The yeah, but finite and infinite games is quite good. Um, yeah, I mean, I it's. Um, I had, you know, I would, so I, my book came out two and a half weeks ago. I would say the first two weeks were just nothing but like, um, ego notifications, you don't know, ego notification disease. Um, yep. and I finally got home, you know, a couple of days ago and had a day of like, still having that sickness. And then, you know, and then finally had a day where I connected with why I wrote the book, yeah. um, which I wrote it in part for people to read it, but I also wrote it because, I believe in these larger changes and I, and I feel the need to create an institution that's trying to do this. And, you know, I was sort of like, okay, so now I, I just need to get back to my plan. I need to get mm-hmm. back to my plan. And like the book is part of the plan, but it's not the whole thing. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm like talking to people, I'm trying to do the things so that people can really hear this. And I, you know, I, I really have to live like the, the bentoist ideals that my book promotes and really try to balance this now me uh-huh. Uh, this now me that makes me identify with like I saw the other day, the day before the impeachment trial started, Donald Trump tweeted like 82 times in a day, which <laughs> works out to about every 15 minutes. So I think that yeah. process was probably he tweets and he spends 15 minutes looking at the notifications of like mm-hmm. what people said in response. And then he tweets, he starts it again every 15 minutes. Yeah. And I, I, I recognize that's what he's doing. Cause like, I would love to do that. Right. There's a part of you, <laughs> there's a part of you that's like, let me find my inner Gary V. Yeah. Just like no fear, no, whatever. Like, look at me, look at me. Yeah. I deserve it. Look at me. And like, that is in me. That is in me. Now, when, when I allow that part of myself to speak, I like, if I don't instantly regret it, I regret it a couple hours later, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, but it's there, it's there. And so, but like, I have to balance, I have to balance that with the future me of knowing who I want to be, of knowing what's important. And I also need yeah. to balance it with like thinking about other human beings who probably don't just want to hear me shouting look at me over and over all day like that's probably not cool for other folks so i i try to ground those feelings in a larger context of myself and that lets me like love those things about myself humor them you know like not not feel ashamed of them be more like oh you know yeah we really do need that don't we but like it's okay you don't that doesn't mean you have to do it you know um but it's 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 such a battle wow well, I mean, I think you you kind of teed up the whole idea of bentoism, and you kind of introduced us to the sort of now me, now us, future me, and future us um, in what you just said. Uh, so let's let's talk about the idea of bentoism. What is it? And then you know, kind of go into bento values, which you defined as scarcity, autonomy, community, fairness, and tradition. Yeah. So I I like um, so I was sitting here at my desk, same place I'm sitting right now, one day, and I, I just was like, I drew a hockey stick graph. You know, I, I was trying to I, during the book. While writing, I had three weeks that I'd work on the computer, and then I would have one week off where I would do nothing on the computer, and I would just read and cut out a printout of what I'd written over the previous three weeks, or I would just draw. Um, like, I would I would storyboard a chapter. Um, I would just try to do different things just to, like, loosen my brain up. And um, so, I happened to doodle a, a hockey stick graph, a, a chart where the line just goes up and to the right. And as I was looking at it, it occurred to me that... The two x the two axes of that graph actually like kept going. That the x axis of a hockey stick graph of our self interest it goes from now all the way into the future. It extends farther out to the right, 
And the y-axis measuring whatever it is we're trying to grow, whatever our self-interest actually is, it also keeps going. It keeps going for me. And then as it grows, it goes to us. Like I thought about the experience of being single versus having a family or being a solo entrepreneur and then having employees, like how big those gaps are. And so I like drew this like sort of bigger chart and suddenly this hockey stick graph was just like a tiny slice of this bigger picture. And I sort of drew some lines on it to make it into four quadrants and, um, and I thought, okay, so our self-interest isn't just this like one space, it's these other spaces, but like, what is this a chart of? And I just, I wanted to try to describe it. So I wrote on the piece of paper, this is beyond near-term orientation. Like it was a way to see longer term. And as I looked at that phrase, I realized that that was an acronym that said bento. And mm. I thought, oh shit, this is a, this is a bento box. These are four compartments of a bento box. And just like two weeks before my wife had shown me this book that had mentioned the bento box and talked about how the bento honors the Japanese dieting philosophy of hadahachi bu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. Mm. So I thought, oh, bentoism, bentoism, like a bento box for our values, for our self-interest, our choices. It's a way to not just maximize for right now. It's a way to be hungry for tomorrow. It's a way to really see our full self-interest. So in that bento, there is in the bottom left corner uh, where the hockey stick graph is, that's our now me, what I want and need right now. And the bottom right corner of the bento is future me, the older, wiser version of ourself that we want to become, the person that lives the obituary we, we hope we deserve to have. And the top left is now us, the people that we rely on, who rely on us, our friends, our families, our coworkers. And then the top right is future us, our children and everybody else's children too. So the book argues that every choice we make impacts all of these spaces. It's not just about now me. Um, mm -hmm. And all these spaces factor into all of our choices. However, because of our limited way of seeing our self-interest today, we see now me as rational and we see everything else as kind of emotional and not as real. And so we, we struggle to make good decisions thinking about the future. We struggle to make good decisions thinking about other people because we have been conditioned to believe that those things are, are somehow less real than just our me selves. And so bentoism is, is a personal philosophy that I've been teaching in workshops and just sort of putting it in people's hands, helping people build their bentos, find their values, use it to make self-coherent choices. I talk a lot about being self-coherent. Um, and then I think the, the longer term project of bentoism is to use this, this case that our self-interest is bigger than just now me, use that as a platform to define new rational values, basically to combine, to, to create values that will compete with financial value. So yeah. that when a CEO is facing a decision that will have a clear financial outcome, and maybe we'll have a, what is today an unclear environmental outcome. What if, what if that decision could be put in a place where both of those outcomes were the same level of clear and both run a, sort of a rational playing field, level playing field? Whereas today, money is the rational choice and everything else is just this sort of feeling stuff that we really only act on in moments of crisis when we feel like we have to apologize. Yeah. And so what is the world where those things can be on the same playing field? How, how do we make future generations, how do, how do, we, how do we make it less difficult to make good choices? And so I think that's a process that takes a long time. I think that's like a decades long process um, that involves a lot of research and, and, and working with organizations, like really feeling the real world imp implications of this. But I, I am truly, I'm like deeply convinced that the shift in perspective that allows us to evolve and allows us to begin repairing the world 
is to expand how we see self-interest and expand how we see value because that lets us apply the things that human beings are so good at, optimizing, growing, collaborating to, to create things and allows us to direct that energy towards, you know, uh, collective goals, ones that are not just about growing our own wealth, which is basically, yeah. basically we have all these amazing tools and we're using them for the lamest reason possible right now. <laughs> and so yeah. could we, can that be changed? Is that, is that, is that a, a pressure point that can be changed? Mm. Yeah. So I, I wonder, I mean, you'd mentioned earlier, like you've gotten to talk to a lot of very wealthy people. Are any of them even remotely open to this or do they just see it as utopian, socialist and crazy? Uh, largely utopian, socialist and crazy. But, um, yeah. but, but, you know, I had an interesting conversation the other day um, where I was talking to a group of people along these lines at a dinner table and they pushed back on my theory. They said, you know, our companies are not financially maximizing. We just are making good decisions that happen to produce big financial outcomes, you know, but it's not, it's not that money is the only important thing. Like that's really an exaggeration. And like the second, the second, this part of the conversation happens, a new person sits down to join and he's the CEO of an outdoors company. And, um, so I, we start talking and, learn that he's like, um, is a private equity guy who's running this company. He doesn't really use the products that the company makes, but he's been leading <laughs> it for a while. Yeah. And, um, and so I posed this question to him, Hey, can you, can you imagine, um, someone putting a rational argument in front of you that would say that the single most important thing you could do for the prosperity of your company 10 years from now is to invest heavily in R and D of sustainable products, you know, changing the way, changing your, your carbon emissions, because, you know, otherwise the, the pastime that you support, like might really disappear in 10 years, you know, people might not be able to do that anymore at all. So like, could, could you imagine, you know, someone making that case to you and you going, you know, and, and, and you sort of operating on that investing money to produce non-financial outcomes that will ultimately result in, you know, a, a continued prosperity down the line. But the point is not a, a financial return. And again, it was like this broken synapse and he, you know, he kept saying, I, I, I see what you're trying to do here. And that's what he just kept saying over and over. And I kept trying to put this in different ways and he, and he just, he just wouldn't connect. It wouldn't connect. And after this conversation stopped, I looked at the other people who had been arguing with me just a moment before saying that my theory was not true. And I could see that they, they understood what I meant. And that, you know, the notion of why can't we use money to grow things other than money? Um, suddenly that, like they could see why that was actually maybe a pretty good question to ask. So, you know, I, I could, uh, you know, I think I can, I think I can evolve how people think. I mean, generally the way I, I try to talk to people is I imagine I'm like, it's because what I would want, I, I crawl into someone's bubble with them. I lock mm -hmm. eyes with them. I make sure that we both feel safe and comfortable. And then while we're look, locking eyes and talking, I'm very slowly shifting their bubble in another direction. And by the time we stop talking and we look around, we've both moved. We both moved like five yards. And so they're in a different place than they were before. And they didn't feel like their opinion was changing. They didn't, you know, they're just sort of nodding along, agreeing with what this person was saying to them. But what they're surprised to find is that the impact of that has left them in a different place than they were before. Yeah. And, um, and so that, that happens, that happens because the, 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 the the negative emotions, the worries, the concerns, the, those are things we all share. And we try to quiet them. We, we try to justify them. We try to rationalize them or we, or we pretend like they have to be here. And, you know, that ability to try to 
make the things that don't make sense, try to allow them to make sense. Try to explain like, actually, you know, every system works to produce the outcome it produces. You know, yeah. it's just like, we're not being honest about it. Um, and so, yeah, those conversations make me think that these, that we're not really aware of what we're doing and, and gaining that awareness is a surprising moment for people. I think the example of the NBA in Hong Kong is another case where we believe that spreading economic value would mean the growth of American values. And suddenly we face this question of what if, what does it mean if like America's economic values and say a value like free speech are actually not aligned? What if those things are in conflict the way we're currently thinking about it? And how does that mean that we should order our value system? And so like, that's, that's a, a level of confrontation that our, our society has not faced in a long time. And, um, and I think those, there are going to be more of those things they will add up and they will require they will require the need for a new way of defining and thinking about value that will allow us to to act with some coherence and to not and to not feel like the world is just breaking um and so i, I think those i think that moment is coming and so i think the the pessimistic optimistic take would be that you need a crisis to produce uh, to produce change, to create a solution. And, um, I root for soft crises, uh, but, but, you know, we're in a place where almost half of Americans can't afford their bills every month. So it's more just a crisis that we've gotten used to that we yeah. become comfortably numb to. Um, but you know, problems create solutions. Solutions don't create themselves on their own. Wow. Uh, this has been this really, really, really amazing. I mean, I, I to me, this is one of those things that like I have to probably play back a hundred times just to kind of think through everything you've said. I mean, you've like, like I said, I think to me, the, the most eye opening thing about the book was it just, it made you think. Um, so I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I think it's, um, I think it comes down to like a, uh, an unusual value set, you know, it's like, when someone has one thing, but also has another thing that, that you wouldn't totally associate. This is the most inane place to go, but it's just what came to mind. I'm not a, I'm not a regular watcher of the YouTube series, Hot Ones, where people eat hot wings, but I watched the Shia LaBeouf one. I've always been a Shia LaBeouf fan, and I was just curious, like, what kind of guy is he? And he just had this amazing combination of, like, this, you know, kind of gruff John Wayne hyper-masculinity paired with like this true tenderness and, and I don't know, emotional maturity to where it was just like a, just such an evolved man. And to me, it was like having this combination of values being like a, you know, hyper macho in some way, but also just the antithesis of that in another way. I think this is why we love the rock so much, but I, I think, yeah, it's just it's just when those combinations come together uh, in a way that we weren't expecting. And the other thing I think that makes people unmistakable, and this is probably just the one that's it's 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 often unexpected, is just true honesty. You know, yeah. as as a CEO, I write in the book about how you meet other CEOs, and everyone's like, "How are things going?" And everyone's just saying, "But you wouldn't believe how good it is. Like even better. I'm doing even better than that guy's doing." And it's just like yeah. that level of conversation. Um, and I used to participate in that. And at a certain point, I stopped. Instead, I would just be really honest. How's everything going today? <laughs> yeah, today's brutal, you know, as all days are as a CEO. Like, it's a brutal day. And then you just see who's willing to be honest back with you. 
Mm. And, you know, and, and people that are, are amazing and those are connections you make. And then people who can't get there, just like, oh, you know, uh, that's tough. That's tough that you can't do that. You know, uh, I, I, I wish for you that in the next moment that you can be honest with somebody because it's like way, you know, way more rewarding. Um, yeah. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your book work and uh, the book? Yeah, I'm, you know, the book is called This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Um, I could be found online at ystrickler.com, Y-S-T-R-I-C-K-L-E-R.com. And then for Bentoism, there's a site I love so much that I made with a friend called bentoism.org. And there you you go through like an online workshop that teaches you how to build a bento, teaches you how to make self-coherent choices. And then you can also sign up to be notified of workshops and things like that, which I'm going to keep doing both face-to-face and uh, like online. So if listeners are interested in getting more into bentoism, would love that. That, that's, that would be awesome. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Hey, did you know that every Sunday our community manager, Milena, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? Just text the word UC News to the number 44222 and reply with your email address to get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's UC News to the number 44222 and reply with your email to get these takeaways delivered right to your inbox. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.